to the Mad Wild West podcast. Kick your boots off and stay a while because you're about to hear the stories lost in time from the people that lived and made the Wild West mad. So growing up in San Diego, California, there was, uh, I believe it was, I think it was middle school, I ended up having to read a book called The Island of the Blue Dolphins. Now, I don't know how many people have read that book that are listening or even know the story, but the book that I read was not an exact account, but in my readings, I actually have come across a real story of that story, The Island of the Blue Dolphins. And I'm just going to read it here. It's not called Island of the Blue Dolphins. This one is titled, True Story of an Indian Mother Who Was Marooned for 14 Years on an Island Off the Coast of California. So here we go. The Channel Islands off the coast of Santa Barbara in Venturi Counties, California, was full of interest, especially those having any personal knowledge of that remote and seldom visited region. Particular attention was directed to San Nicolas Island, one of the smallest as also the most distant of the group, which includes Santa Cruz, Santa Rosa, Santa Miguel, San Clemente, with Santa Barbara and Santa Catalina farther to the south, at varying distances of 30 to 40 miles from the mainland, while San Nicolas, most remote of all, lies from 80 to 100 miles almost due west of the Los Angeles coast. Incidentally, Santa Cruz possesses a personal interest for the writer. It was the place where he and two companions were once upon a time treed by a warlike wild boar for a long and most unhappy half-day Easter Sunday, by the way. But that is a very different story from the one about to be recounted. References made in a few publications, such as the report of the Wheeler survey in 1870-1876, as also in recent newspaper accounts to the tragic incident in the history of those islands which occurred in the first half of the last century. This was the marooning for a long term of years on San Nicholas of an unfortunate Indian woman who was accidentally, unavoidably, left behind when her fellow tribespeople were removed en masse to the mainland by the Mexican government, then in control of the entire Pacific coast extending to the point in the far north where the Russians had established themselves. The abandonment of the woman was due to overwhelming love for her child. The same sentiment which the undoubted fact that just as the Colonel's lady and Judy O'Grady are sisters under their skin, so are the most savage as well as the highest civilized among childbearers. Half a century ago, there were people still living on the mainland who had personal knowledge of the marooning. From their recollections as related to the writer, the following more or less accurate narrative is compiled, sufficiently correct in its fundamentals at all events. At one time, and far in remote antiquity as well as in more modern times, the islands named at the outset were manifestly somewhat thickly populated, as evidenced by the remains that have been known for many years to exist there. At various times, the remains have attracted the attention of explorers and investigators, 
yielding quantities of stone, shell, and bone relics of the extinct populations. Some of the artifacts evidencing the possession of a considerable degree of artistic taste as well as expert workmanship. Upward of 20 years or more before the Mexican War, as the narrative goes, these islands were visited with famine, accompanied by an unusual shortage of food supply so far as vegetable growths were concerned due to the long-continued drought. As a consequence, it was decided by authorities of the mainland to remove the entire population of San Nicolas, that being the most distant of the islands and therefore the most difficult to supply. A sailing vessel was chartered and dispatched, and in due time all the men, women, and children were supposedly taken on board. But just as it was ready to start on its journey, one of the women discovered that her little baby, whom she had entrusted to the care of someone else while she carried a load of equipment, had been left on shore. Careful search of the schooner's deck and hold failed to disclose the whereabouts of the infant. A storm was coming up and the captain declared that he would not delay, that if he did, the vessel, which was on the lee shore, would certainly be wrecked and all hands lost. Begging and praying, the poor mother stood at the stern of the schooner while the crew hoisted the sails and raised the anchor, she hoping all the time that the captain might change his mind, but he did not. Indeed, he could not in justice to other human beings in his charge. As the vessel began to gather way, she was driven to desperation by her mother love. She jumped overboard and began battling with the seething waves. Neither crew nor own people could do anything to assist or save her, as the breakers were consistently becoming more rough and boisterous, while the gale gathered strength. They watched closely, but as they did not see her gain the shore, concluded naturally enough that she had been drowned in the surf, and so reported to the officials who had dispatched the vessel. No further thought was given to the unfortunate woman for years, and possibly that she might have gained the shore in safety was never even suggested. It was an impossibility and was not even dreamed of. Seldom, in fact, did the native tribes receive even so much consideration at the hands of the rulers of the Mexican coast as was evidenced by rescuing the people of San Nicolas from starvation. Having done this, no further attention was given the matter at the time. Once in a great while, hunters ventured to the island in search of seals and sea otters, whose skins were even then valuable, though they are much more so at present. Fifty years ago, the writer became acquainted with a fortunate hunter who received no less than $1,500 in gold coin for a single otter skin, while much higher prices have since prevailed. The island where the Indian mother was lost was, as stated, 80 miles or so from the mainland. It had no safe harbor and was but rarely visited, even by the most venturesome hunters. Several years after the natives had been removed, a sealer who had landed there reported upon his return that he had found certain signs which seemed to indicate that some person was living or had recently been living on the island, though he had not seen anyone. On two or three occasions subsequently, at widely separated intervals, the same story was brought to the mainland. Finally, one of the hunters reported to the officials that he had caught a glimpse of a human being from a distance and thought it was a woman. This was 14 or 15 years or perhaps more after the Indians had been deported. 
Instructions were given by the government that a thorough search be made, and a party went for that express purpose. They hunted carefully all over the island, but could find no one. At last, however, they ran across a rude sort of shelter in a secluded cave among the cliffs in the shore, which showed plainly that some human being was living there. There were ashes of a fire evidently been burning not long before, and a number of objects that could only have been the work of human hands. After making a careful and minute search, but without results, they made a plan, pretending to sail away late one afternoon, but coming back after dark. In the shelter where they had discovered evidences of human occupation, they found an Indian woman sound asleep, wrapped in a robe of seal skins. She was greatly frightened upon being wakened, but was pacified by signs and friendly expressions, and at last was persuaded that no harm was intended. After considerable effort, she finally consented to return with them to the mainland. When she recovered from her fright, and after someone was found who understood something of her dialect, she said that she was indeed the mother who had jumped overboard so many years before to go in search of her child. She had reached the shore all right, though after a long and strenuous combat with the waves, which had been a difficult task, during which she had been carried by the current around a rocky point out of sight of the schooner. It was dark when she landed, and she could not find her baby. The next morning she made her way back to the place where her people had lived, and to her great sorrow found that wild dogs had killed and devoured the little one during the night, only a few scattered bones remaining. All their belongings had been taken away by the Indians, and the maroon woman had no implements, no cooking utensils, nothing at all with which to procure or prepare food for herself in any manner. But, like all her tribe, she had been taught to make a fire by the friction of two pieces of wood. There was an abundance of shellfish at hand among the rocks. She built a rough shelter of stones under an overhanging cliff and kept a fire going perpetually after she had once started it. While there was always a good supply of driftwood on the beach, she learned how to catch fish, young seals, and other saltwater life. There were wild berries growing on the island, also plants and roots of which she knew from experience were good to eat, as well as others that bore seeds that furnished food. She had made snares and caught many birds, ducks, geese, etc. These she ate, but she saved the skins of many, especially the breasts, which she cured and then stitched together with sinew, thus made clothing. Several times she had seen hunters who had visited the island, but was afraid of them, and they were not of her own people. She had hid among the rocks until they sailed away. When she was taken to the mainland, she had, among other things, a mantle or blanket made of bird's breasts, which was so unique and beautiful that the good padre in charge of the Santa Barbara mission bought it from her and sent it to Rome as a gift to the head of the church. None of the unfortunate women's tribe or family were left in Santa Barbara, and it was not known where they had gone. However, she was taken care of most kindly and carefully by the family of the seaman who had found her, Captain William Nidover, by name. But she was not accustomed to living in a house, or to wearing so many clothes as were required, or to eating the kind of food given her by the people who afforded her shelter, and her life was plainly, in fact, quite unhappy. She was wont to wander on the beach for hours at a time, gazing off into the distance toward her former island home and the grave of her child. 
In a short time, she became ill. Then tuberculosis developed, and soon she passed away. Her remains lie in the churchyard at Santa Barbara, and the story of her tragic experience long since became a legend. An interesting fact in connection with the islands named is the question that has been raised at various times as to their legal ownership. In the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, by which the California coast as far as the Oregon line was seceded to the United States after the Mexican War, no mention is made of them. While the practice in such cases is that no island at such a distance go with the mainland in ownership unless an express claim to sovereignty shall be set up. San Nicolas Island, 80 miles off the California coast, the flora and fauna of the island are a different character in many respects from those of the mainland, evidencing that their formation was of a later period. Santa Cruz, which is the largest of the group, has an extensive area of admirable land in a great valley cut off from the ocean through its entire extent by rugged mountains. The only access is through a narrow entrance or gorge which commences at a cove on its northern shore known as Prisoner's Harbor. This point is so named from the fact that in former times the island was utilized as a penitentiary settlement by the Mexican government. Some 50 years ago, when the writer became interested in the matter, he came in touch with a party of Americans in San Francisco who were organizing an expedition with the intention of procuring a sailing vessel, arming it, going and driving off the foreigners who were in possession and annexing it to the United States. Settling thereon under the national land laws and establishing a cooperative community. No direct action, however, resulted from this project. But it was in fact that no one was permitted to land on this or any other island without first securing express permission from the non-resident foreign claimants and occupiers because of the fear they might undertake to jump locations thereon. Those assaying to trespass upon the disputed territory were handled in anything but a gentle manner by the watchful employees of the claimants, who only recognized the law as propagated by the late Colonel Colt, promptly and most unceremoniously expelled all intruders. Only a few years ago, a movement was set on the foot in Mexico to establish ownership to the islands under the claim that they were never legally seceded to the United States there appearing to be little or no doubt upon that point so far as the records were concerned. Private parties were behind this movement, from which nothing ever resulted. It is a notable fact in this connection that the self-constituted owner of one of the largest islands fell victim to the vengeance and, incidentally, the shotguns of a number of otherwise peaceful and hard-working settlers including a minister of the gospel, whom he essayed to despoil of their hard-won mainland homes through the same tactics that he employed in gaining the possession of the Sea Grit Principality. This chapter is an admirable illustration of the strength of a mother's love, even among the aboriginal tribes. There is a high authority that all that a man hath will he give for his life, but all that a woman hath will she give for the life of another her own child, as in this case. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and the crazy stories. And until the next episode, keep your horses tied up. Thanks for listening.
Mad Wild West podcast. These are the true stories that made it wild.